The following program is an abridged audio version of the streaming video talk show, A Wonderful Chaos. The hosts are Andy Chaliff and Bambos Dimitriou. The format is entirely casual, unscripted conversation. If you'd like to watch a live taping or participate with your comments in real time, subscribe to A Wonderful Chaos on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, or Twitch. This is the essence of my book. There's 300 million people in the world who have depression. That was before the pandemic. Only half of those people get help. Most of those are men. My message is directed at that 150 million people to say it's okay to ask for help. They don't want to be perceived as weak when that's just the total opposite because it's an act of courage to ask for help. It's a wonderful chaos. And the atheist pray? It's a wonderful chaos, and we like it that way. It's a wonderful chaos, and we like it that way. It's a wonderful chaos, and we like it that way. We're on the show today with Tim Cross. <laughs> Tim Cross. And if you know what Cross means in Dutch, it means he's going to be a little bit, um, what would we call? Sly. Sly isn't cross. Isn't cross like a uh, rude? Crass. Mm. I think that's the right thing. Or maybe it's English. I'm, I'm mixing all my languages together. allowed on this show, so... <laughs> We've got Tim Crass on, and we got a very uplifting topic. Drug addiction. Suicide, depression, and toxic masculinity. You know, when we bring on these shows where people have gone through dramatic life experiences and had to move through it and then had the turnaround, it's almost like this hero's journey of... I've had the, the the depths of despair and now I get into my healing and then there's all this awareness. And then and then it becomes a little bit like the wounded healer moment when you heal to the point where you can now help others that are now dealing with the same challenges. Themselves. Not only help others, you write a book, you write a book and it's called You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun. Yes. So he's written <laughs> a book. You don't have to swallow your gun. Well, he told me before he came on that he had uh, used and I don't know if he'd say abused, but I imagine after 41 years of using marijuana, he may have considered that abuse. So he'd used the marijuana for 41 years. He lost his job, his money, he got divorced. And at some point he was holding a butcher knife to his wrist and he said, why not just end this suffering? And I'm curious how that shifted. Yeah. Should and we bring him on? We should bring him on. That was nine years ago. Oh. So now we see him nine years later. Tim. Hey, Tim. Gentlemen, how are you? My, my first question, you came to Amsterdam. Why would you come to Amsterdam? Yeah. Actually, it was a business trip. Really? I was working for a tech startup, and there was a big conference there. Myself and an associate went there. I couldn't avoid going into one of the pubs and uh, checking out the menu. I got it. Yeah, of course, because you were 41 years. They probably had a big selection of marijuana here that you hadn't experienced before. Loved it. Loved it. Wow. So I now heard, though, that you the marijuana basically in the U.S. is much better developed than the marijuana in the Netherlands in the meantime, because it's a ma- it's just a cottage industry. That's what we uh, have been told. It'll knock you on your ass. Yeah. 
Um, we also know another fun fact, which I'd like to say, is that you basically sold your soul to the devil at Fox News for several years of your life. How many years did that happen? Yeah, I was there 14 years in the television industry. 14 years. Okay, well, we'll we won't hold that against you on the show. Okay. Well, you, <laughs> you do look good in camera. Yeah, he does. So, <laughs> were, were you, when we talk about drug addiction, are we just talking about marijuana or were yeah. there other substances that you would consume? I hate it when people ask me, what did you take? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, certainly in college, I dabbled in Coke and, uh, my roommates had a, a, a yen for quaaludes, which I couldn't wow. stand. Um, and black beauties, you know, if you needed to study, take some speed and you were right there. But marijuana was the drug of choice. And, and wow. I love it. And that's that's the problem. Is that, still, t- still till today. Oh, I love it. I, yeah. I, I, if you put put a bag in front of me, I'll knock you over to. Oh, yeah, to get to it? Yeah. Okay, that hasn't changed. No, I I have that desire, and that's why I can't be around it. Oh, I got. Oh, okay. So, so you won't smoke, even though that it's an. You you see it as an addiction. Oh, totally. Okay. Totally. Take us back now, because you know I mentioned a little bit about your uh, your what we call executive vice presidency at the Fox News Corp. So when. When you kind of look back at your life, if you're narrating it, where would you say like there were like important moments where you kind of took roads or paths that didn't serve you long term? Like what were the kind of key moments that you went back and shared that? Well, I I used to have competitions within myself to see how high I could get and still maintain in a major negotiation with a major media company and all kinds of lawyers sitting around the table. And I would be, I'd visit New York once a month. And, you know, when I got up in the morning, uh, if I had a chance at lunch after dinner, after meeting, uh, after dinner, um, you know, it was just round the clock. And but prepping for a meeting, man, I I would try and get as high as possible because I was playing this game with myself. Can I maintain? Wow. And that's pretty sick looking back at it. Can, yeah. Can you maintain? Yeah. Can and, I maintain? And like. I'm, I'm thinking of myself and everyone that I hanged out with, everyone that smokes. Mm. There's this smell that you that you surround yourself with. You get like yellow under your eyes. So I, I couldn't even, and, and the eyes are very small. So when did your colleagues start to notice that, hey, there's a, there's a thing going on here? No. It's funny. Um, you know, when I work my program to get sober, and part of it is going back to everybody that was affected by my condition, um, 98% of the people said they had no clue wow. that because, I was. Because that was normal. That's how they knew you. <laughs> no, I just, you know, I just thrived with it. I loved it. I, you know, it was fun. 
Uh, it would yeah. make- but when, when you say high, are we only talking about marijuana or are we talking about like other drugs at these times? No, marijuana. Wow. So you would really just be stoned out of your head and negotiating. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, look, I had a, a bulldog for a lawyer. And, you know, we were good guy, bad guy. And she was she was an animal. Oh, and, wow. then, and then the other company would appeal to me and I would play dumb. Like, well, what, of course, whatever she says, uh, come on. That's what yeah. are you, why are you wasting time? And they would throw temper tantrums and yell and scream. And yeah. they would they would all get pissed off at me saying we we yell and scream we we get personal with you and you do nothing yeah we're, we're stymied we don't understand yeah so, so when when because andy mentioned that it actually did ruin your career so can you share a little bit what exactly uh evolved yeah i mean i was working at fox and um I was on the road most of the time, Tuesday through Friday, Monday through Thursday, and it just um, it it broke me. It it, it just um, it was overwhelming. The stress was overwhelming, and that just added to my you know frequency of getting high. Mm. Then my dad passed away, and I I didn't. Uh, know how to grieve that properly. And so what I did was accelerated my usage of marijuana. And, and, uh, finally, uh, I lost, I lost my job. Um, I, I started dating this woman and we got married and that was just, you know, couldn't have been a bigger mess. And, I thought, and I, I uh, thought I could uh, start a online sports educational website for kids. And this was oh, 2008, 2009. My partner and I thought we raised $12 million. And then because the market crashed, um, the guy pulled out and I tried to knock on doors and raise the money and we couldn't raise enough money. And I always thought if that failed, I could get another job. Mm. Well, well, the economy shrank and I couldn't get a job. Wow. And, uh, you know, marijuana became my job. Yeah. And, you know, I lost, I lost everything. And, Finally, somebody in my family said, you know, we think you need to go to meetings. And it was somehow, some way, after that first meeting, I went to um, a workshop, 12-step workshop, and met a guy. And, you know, I don't know how it came out of my lips, but I asked him if he'd be my sponsor. And this guy gave me his card and told me to call him on Monday and I did and I picked him up at his office and and then we were going to go have coffee and he got in my car and he said you have a bag of pot in your car and I said yeah he said what the fuck 
are you serious about getting sober or are you just wasting my time? And I said, look, I need help. I'm, I'm telling you, I need help. And for an hour, he just grinded me into the ground about, look, pal, if you're not serious, I'm not wasting my time with you. You know, I'll, I'll, if you're serious, I'll go shoulder to shoulder with you and, and take you through the program. But if you're not serious, you're going to hell on your own. Yeah, don't I'll waste my time. Right. Yeah. And that guy saved my life because he was the guy who I knew I couldn't get over on. Yeah. And that was, you know, the mindset when I was getting high all the time was I would l- cheat lie steal in order to get my next high yeah but i couldn't do that with this guy he scared the shit out of me he wore leather jackets he had five motorcycles he, he said he saved my life he'd been through the same thing yeah it's funny because i think that's the what we talk about your ability to help and heal other people that we mentioned and it's exactly when you've been through the thing that you see another person and you see all the telltale signs that they still aren't there. And I often say to Bambos, he oh. jokes because I often have people asking for me to coach. And he says, you know, I'm rejecting far more people than I'll accept because I'll always say the conditions aren't there. The conditions aren't there. And for me, there's always the bag of marijuana. I'm not dealing with addiction, but in my metaphorical world, there's a bag of marijuana that they haven't made a decision that they're not going to stop using. And I'm like, go to another coach, someone who will sit with you for many more years until you decide you really want to deal with this. And then um, I'll, I'll be I'll, I'll, I'll stand shoulder to shoulder because that's the way it feels in the end. If you're really with someone you're actually going through the worst shit of their life and you, they've got to be dedicated to the process. Otherwise you're wasting your time. Spot on. Yeah. We, Bambos and I, we talked about it on yesterday's show as well is that Bambos was having a rough time of it. And, and I was said on yesterday's show that he was so determined that I said, I will never have to convince him to do the work. I just have to give him some important guidance here and there. And because of that, it was like, it was for me a joy to support. Sure. And I've seen when I, I'll get a call from people every three or four months and they've got a problem and then I'll sort of kind of help them solve it. But I realize they don't want to really do the work. They just want someone to solve that one little thing for them. And then they want to go back to the, you know, the, the yeah. unconscious life or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you share a little bit? Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you feel comfortable, but to share a little bit, were, were you fired from your job because you were high or because of your behavior? No, I, I was actually let go because they sold the company. Hmm. And, uh, you know, f- investment firm purchased it. And what they do as soon as they buy it is they uh, hmm. let go of all the executives. Yeah. So that that's what uh, transpired there. It had nothing to do with my performance because we were we were doing very well. Was that was that pre kind of Richard Murdoch or was that after he took it over? Um, I had I had left Fox and went to Univision, a Spanish language television yeah. uh, network, and worked there five or six years, and then the owner Jerry Prencio sold it, and uh, that's when that occurred. Okay. So, when you started smoking. I'm assuming you were you started you said in uni, but did it start before that or? Yeah, as soon as 
Look, I grew up in a middle, typical middle-class household in New York, Long Island. I didn't realize until I left for college that my parents had abused me and my brother physically, mentally, socially, uh, emotionally. Once I got to school, the first thing that happened was that all my buddies took me into their room and introduced me to the bong and pot because I had never gotten high. Mm. And then I was off to the races. I couldn't stop. These guys would get high before meet, uh, classes, after classes. I worked in a bar as a waiter for money. Everybody was high before the gig, after the gig. I just couldn't, you know, I was enjoying life. My, yeah. For the first time, my grades plummeted. I called my brother and asked for help, told him what was going on. He was like my dad, emotionless. He couldn't, he didn't know what to say or do. Mm -hmm. And wow. I just, I just wasted away. It's interesting. When I was in, in uh, college, my first year, I was with a heavy pot smoker. And, uh, and then he did what I, I wrote about it in the book as well. He did it, what he called his wake and bake. So he'd wake and like, and, we, and I was sharing the room with him. So at eight in the morning, I'd hear the bong water, you know, percolating. You know, that, that was the way I woke up through all of my first year of college. Um, and it was funky because he was trying to grow pot plants in our closet. So he had the tinfoil on all the walls and the damp air you could smell throughout the whole house because it made this really damp. Yeah. And at some point I'm walking home and there's a police, uh, a police car like uh, and, and police are walking in and out of our apartment. So I'm just thinking, oh, my God, now we're and, and what had happened is some someone kind of a weird homeless guy. We let sleep on our sofa and he jumped off the first story floor and uh, it became its own little drama. But. My first year in college was uh, like like a ch ch letting children play where they didn't have the maturity to do so yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, have, I had some questions about uh, something else sure. that you'd said. And I don't know if you had anything you want to go down. Go you were talking about in, in, the, in the intro, you mentioned the toxic masculinity thing. And I feel like that's a, a like a. A very concrete thing I have in my head, but I think it, the toxic masculinity is different for different people. So for my version of toxic masculinity was when I was first going into business, like we used to go and stay out to one, two or three in the morning on business nights, drinking Drambuie at the hotel and feeling very self-important and then exhausted the next morning, but figuring out a way to, to make it work and then spending two or three the next night drinking Drambuies in the hotel again. And I remember that my the CEO at that time, he was getting so drunk that he didn't know where his car was parked and they didn't know for two months until a hotel where he was at actually said, hey, your car is uh, here. And so that like, and, and in a way, you know, I can see amongst us men, we kind of laugh at it and say, you know, oh, and, and at the time we might laugh at it thinking, oh, this is this is uh, cool. I don't know if cool is the right word, but showing the macho energy. Yeah. And, um, and and in actuality, it's just total sickness. And the and, and the humor is, is I don't that was my version of toxic masculinity. I'm wondering for you as well, like what were your versions of toxic masculinity? 
Yeah, I mean, before I got sober, uh, I didn't realize that I was so toxic in that area. I had started to study masculinity and understood it, um, you know, intellectually, but I was not carrying it out mentally and physically and emotionally. And it starts with the ego. And, you know, the ego has to be smashed every day because when we come out of the womb, we're like, gimme, gimme, gimme. And that's how it is every day when we wake up, you know, we, we want everything. What I found is living a life of being of service to others is the key to my existence. Mm, and that, you know, every day that I've been sober, I feel more and more closer to my authentic self. Yeah. by just giving what I have learned to others, you know, and I sponsor a guy in the program and, uh, you know, to see his life turn around at work and with his family and his wife and his kids, mm. uh, it, it, it's just, it, it's phenomenal. There's no better feeling, you know, yeah. you know, to, to help a, another man change his life. But yeah, Here's the macho guy who, you know, he's got the hot car and all the all the bling around his neck and he's got the red Ferrari and, you know, he thinks he's bad, you know, and he goes out with a woman and the whole conversation is about him. He's like, let me tell you why I am so cool. And she could care less about that because women want to emote. They want to be heard. She wants to tell a man what's going on with her. Mm. You know, women are all about, you know, they talk about their issues. So the guy is, is you know, elbowing the woman like, hey, no, you got to listen to me because I'm so cool. And halfway through the dinner, she's like, Ugh, this guy, he's he grossing me out. I'm I'm walking out. And yeah. the guy's like, well, I don't get it. I'm the coolest guy since sliced bread. Yeah. And that's that macho thing. And, you know, on the, on the flip side, I look at healthy masculinity. I see a man has to have three qualities to be walking down the road of, of being healthy in when it comes to masculinity and one sure is strength you know men can move heavy objects but they also have to be strong in being able to have the tough discussions with within their family or their workplace and know that the truth needs to be told even though it's going to be hard for the other person to accept mm -hmm. and and a man needs to have a sense of humor and to lighten up, you know, life is that held on. Is that number two? That's number two. OK, I'm writing these down just so you know. So we got one is strength, which is defined by the ability to come forth with truth. Two is humor. Yeah. Like life's to be enjoyed. Don't be so serious, buddy. OK, you know, we got to have fun here. And number three, there's got to be some connection to some type of spirituality for grounding purposes. Mm -hmm. There's a million things that, that somebody can use to connect with spirituality, something greater than themselves. But 
you know, I found prayer and meditation and, and my, my most important relationship is with my creator. And if I don't have that, if not, I'm not making that connection, then it's my ego that's getting in the way. Mm. I think I can drive the bus where, look, I'm, I'm just a jerk on the bus. You know, yeah. God is driving the bus. I can have all these intentions and make sure that I'm working as hard as I can towards those. But I can't control the results. I can't control the timeline. It's up to he, the big guy. He says, get off the fucking bus now. And you're like, but I don't want off the bus. Yes. <laughs> Surrender. I love it. So strength, humor, and spirituality. That That's Tim Cross's three, what would you call them? The three um, qualities of someone who is healthy with their masculinity. Is that what you'd say? I call it the three-dimensional man. Okay. Three-dimensional man. Do, do you actually talk about this in your book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Absolutely. I talk about it on the book. I talk about it on my podcast. You know, this look, take a look at what's going on in the workplace today. Mm. Men are over talking women. Women start talking about an eye business idea and men start, you know, in their click, start talking to themselves to drown out the woman. Mm hmm. The woman comes up after the meeting, talks to the, the the guy, the leader, says, hey, I got this idea, blah, 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 blah. And he says, wow, that's a great idea, except you're a woman. And the lady's like, you know, she can go to HR, but she might be fired. She can go to HR. Maybe they'll give her help. She can go look for another job where the environment is healthier, or she can sit back at her cubbyhole and just doodle on her computer. Mm. Whereas the masculine leader who's got healthy masculinity, he realizes that his role is to create a safe environment for a woman to be exactly who she is and not be intimidated and to listen to her and try to clarify and empathize with where she's at and understand her. And this goes with, with you know, being inclusive and irregardless of color. You know, we all have to work together and understand each other. You know, how do you explain these people taking a run at, at Asians and hitting them over the head and beating them up or the LBGTQ community. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't explain that violence. I don't know what's going through these people's heads. What's the problem? These people are trying to live life. I don't even know if they're gay. I don't even yeah. know, you know, yeah. what, what the background is. I think when we look, because there was a, the, a good, a good, uh, example of the toxic masculinity came out yesterday when I, I don't know the the woman the gymnastic gymnast Simona Biles is that her name yes okay when when she uh, dropped out and then said was because she was mentally not ready prepared and then there was an incredible like toxic masculinity push to shame blame say you know you, you, it, it 
boggled my mind the lack of compassion, the lack of any form of understanding that, hey, life is not always easy. And to, to hold true, to say, actually, it's better that I drop out than that if I perform when I already see it could harm me or even even the group I'm with. That's that's more generous than actually doing it because you think you have to do it. That 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 blew my mind when I saw that in the it not it didn't really because I'd lived through so many years of other things, but it saddened me again. This is the essence of my book is that I'm there's 300 million people in the world who have depression. That was before the pandemic. So there's probably more now. Only half of those people get help. Most of those are men. And my message is directed at that 150 million people to say, it's okay to ask for help. And with men, what stops them is their idea of masculinity. They don't want to be perceived as weak, as a pussy. Mm. They think that that shows weakness when that's, that's just the total opposite because it's an act of courage to ask yeah. for help. God. And you see, I, I, I just want to say I'm, I'm smiling because the pussy is, is the most powerful organ in the world. It can take a pounding, it gives birth, life. It's very sensitive, it's very emotional. And in a way, I stopped calling men pussies. I just call them, what is it, plofkip? I don't know. It's it's the equivalent of a Kentucky Fried Chicken, like really bad quality meat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's the typical... That's the, you know, the generation, you know, the wording changes and people get far more offended now. But it's the words that we grew up with that we associated with not wanting to be. And and there is a degree to which the next generation has seen through our bullshit. And actually, they're calling us out on it, the hypocrisy and the absurdity of thinking that that was ever normal. And, uh, and, 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 And the older generation certainly doesn't like it. You know, it's like, hold on, who are you to tell me you're not old enough? We're actually the insight that these younger generations are having around our use of language, our viewing of gender. Like there's so much insight there that can't be seen because it always comes back to the same theme, identity, because we don't want to think that we didn't know. Like we, we there's this egocentric thing that unfortunately we have to, and that, and that was why when Steve Jobs said, you know, the invention of death was the best thing that was ever created because we need new, new people to come in with new ideas. And, and yeah, and it really is that way. It's, you know, the, the identities, if, if it doesn't die while you're still living, that means that you're not really present to what is because you're trying to defend an idea of yourself. What pushed me into this work being a mental performance advocate is I sat with three of my buddies over the course of the last few years, had a cup of coffee on like a Wednesday on a Monday. I get a call from another friend saying, Hey, did you hear about Joe? Oh no. Well, Joe hung himself on Saturday Hmm. because these guys didn't reveal that they were going through depression. Yeah. That they couldn't see the end of the light at the end of the tunnel. 
And that just, you know, when I hear that, it numbs me for 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. I can't deal. I can't sit at my computer and get work done because my mind is flooded with just uh, sadness and, and like, what yeah. could I have done? And it's just, I can't continue to get any more calls like that. Hmm. And, I, and I want to reach out to these men and realize that, Hey, you're not alone. There's a certain power of men being with other men that, hey, we all have the same issues. We're all challenged mm. by our work, by our, our relationships with other men, relationships with our family. And when we get together, then we can talk about it and get some help. Yeah. Most men who are feminized, what do they do? They go the easy route and they go get to some woman who will listen to their bullshit. And what does that do? I, I don't understand what that means. What does that mean? The, well, if a man gets feminized, then he goes to a woman that listens to what is How does that explain to me what that dynamic is? A feminized man, you know, most, most families when they're growing up, the man does not, the father does not own their role. Mm -hmm. Whether he's physically there, he's usually emotionless, doesn't tell, doesn't express or share love. And a lot of men just bolt the situation physically mm -hmm. so that, the, so that the, the boy is really growing up with his mother. Yeah. Thus, he becomes feminized because he has no male role model. Hmm. So what, is a, what does a guy do when he gets older and, you know, he's got problems? He seeks out this woman who he can go spill his, his problems to hmm. if she's willing to listen to him. And some women are. Or he, does a lot of, or he does a lot of drugs. Yeah. I, I certainly was the feminized man. Like the first four women that I had certainly had to listen to me uh, moan and groan about my dad way too long. Yeah. I'm sorry to all the women I've loved before who traveled in and out my door. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, now I, so I got this masculinity. I don't, I don't care about what I say. You know, I'm very vulnerable about telling my story because it's in the context of helping others. Yeah. And I've got strong boundaries and I've, I know my terms as a man. And when my woman, you know, crosses the line, I let her know, hey, no, you're, you're crossing the line here. That's not going to work. Can, can you say that again with, with a bit of humor? With a bit of humor. Yeah. Why do you say that? <laughs> did you react to him like I did? Yeah. Because when you say my woman on our end, it sounds so possessive. And like, I'm like, I hear the voice of a millennial in my head. Like, you can't talk about people like that. You know, oh, like. Okay. It, my girlfriend. <laughs> my friend. <laughs> who, who's got. <laughs> it was funny that we both had the same well, moment. Well, actually, I might use the same term, but. Yeah, there, exactly. There's a intensity and intention. But when I said, can you use your humor? I was trying to. Ask you, invite you to do your second principle. 
Oh, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, getting back to now, getting back to so let's let let me try to clear let me try to get more clarity around this subject because the way you describe things can also be experienced as offensive. And you're not being offensive. This is my point. That yeah. so so what I'm trying to what I'm trying to like point out is it's not important. Is like I'm like oh I'm listening to him and he makes a lot of sense. But I could also see how one might use his words and interpret them in a way that aren't the intention of how you're saying them. Just because I'm I'm communicating my terms to my girlfriend. No, no, no. That makes sense. But the softer, the feminized version of saying that in my vernacular, because we're only talking about societal norms and I'm making assumptions about societal norms. So I'm not saying it's right. I don't even care to be. I do care enough to talk about it now. But, hey, everyone gets to to, to, to create their own lives. But the thing is, I see Well, I see. I keep boundaries that yeah. don't work for me. And therefore, if there's a problem with anyone in my life, including the woman I'm with, I just say no. So I'm strong enough to hold that boundary, regardless of who the person is. In a loving way. In a loving way. Absolutely. I mean, look, you have to communicate with women in a different way that you communicate with men. Yeah. (laughs) And I, <laughs> I, I, have, I love Mama's looking over at me. Andy, yeah. what are you going to do with this one? <laughs> that, that was a classic moment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I got to be softer. I have to explain yeah. things better. Well, do, do you know? Um, so as I'm here being with you, there's. For someone to take a knife to their wrist, and, and I'm and I'm just projecting here. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. But I've I've also tried to kill myself five times on my own journey, and somehow pushing yourself to that edge. It it does bring you back in your balls, if you want to use that expression, and in a way of you don't have space for bullshit anymore. Hmm. Hmm. So as you as you came out of that experience, I imagine that I don't know what you had to do to kind of like, oh, wow, I'm not taking any more shit anymore. I almost just ended my life and now life is precious. I'm going to turn things around. But in a, in a way, I remember myself, I didn't have time for bullshit, but the way I dealt with it was really rough. Like I had no social skills. <laughs> It felt a little bit very animalistic how I was communicating. It was only until I met her, <laughs> uh, Andy, uh, and he really, he really, he really, when we met, he's the one that said this behavior is unacceptable and there's other ways of being in the world. And he just put a bend in my mind because I had to learn a new way of communicating. And he told me everything you're saying is right. And there's another way of communicating where you don't alienate the world and you stay in connection with them. And that was one of the biggest gifts Mm. that he gave me. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. You know, I, the fundamentals of life to me are communication skills and relationship skills. Yeah. And for those who don't have them, that that's what starts them getting off the track. Yeah. And, and, it's so hard. It, it, you know, it took me time from when I had that knife at my wrist to, you know, I had to work at, at this. I still work at this every day. I have to be around men who feel the same way mm. so that when I go to a business situation or when I go talk to my girlfriend, you know, I have the strength to deal with it in a proper way. 
And, yeah. you know, look, women test us all the time, all the time. And it's our job to meet that test and pass that test. And the, she pushes me and pushes me and pushes me. And then I'll draw the line. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we'll, we'll still get into it. And then a few hours later, I'll ask her, so how's it going? Everything okay? And she's like, listen, I love you more now that we went through that experience and you stood up to me. I respect that. There's no, I haven't met a man who who has been able to do that without being, you know, yeah. kind of. Kind without, of with, without being also violent in a right. physical Defensive. way. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's, a hard, that's a hard line. I, I think. I've been writing a lot about this. The, the, the I'm going to be doing the third book coming out, I assume, beginning of next year, mid next year. And the book is dealing with the how do you actually strong and vulnerable simultaneously in a way that actually connects you more to a person. And that is a refined skill. Actually, it's, there, there's a degree of it which you need to develop. And it takes not only the skill, but also the emotional understanding behind it. It really does. And and look, you got to realize that when we're around women, well, just like I said, we have to create this safe environment for this woman to be who she is. And our job is to listen mostly because they just emote. You know, I compare their behavior to the woman who goes shopping for a dress and goes into a dozen stores and tries on a bunch of dresses and leaves without buying a dress. Mm. That's just how they are. They emote and they want to get everything out. Do they resolve their problem? Maybe not. But the thing was, they had the opportunity to talk and communicate and emote and to be heard. A man realizes that the woman needs to be heard. That's why we have our job is to listen and clarify and empathize. Sure. I I want to see if it works. Um, (laughs) I'm assuming that you were this toxic masculine. And that's why why now you you have this perspective. Mm -hmm. When, when 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 did you start becoming aware that, that you were an asshole. That you were an asshole. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. It started uh, when I started getting sober, and I mm. was faced with a, a an exercise where I had to write out all my resentments and how it affected me and what my role in it was. And what are you guys drinking? And whiskey. <laughs> Just to get to this interview. Marijuana. <laughs> and so I I had never gone backwards in self-discovery to see, yeah. evaluate my behavior. And once I did that, I was like, oh, my God. Huh? Like, but, but like when you say like, was there a moment like did you flash back to someone you treated like in a way that you're like, oh, I was such a jerk. Like what what was like the moment where I was like, oh, damn it. I was that like, take me to that moment. I I wrote these down and I started to see the trend of every bit of my communication. Yeah. 
I, I would run over people to get what I wanted. Can you be a bit specific in example so yeah. I can get an idea? Were you uh, like one of those people that always was in a meeting and just assumed that the woman was going to get the coffee for everybody? <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> we, I don't know if we both think we, we're, we're suspicious on that answer. No, bring the marijuana. Yeah, she, yeah. You didn't need coffee. All right, but, but continue. What was that? Yeah, yeah. Take a take us to to a, a situation where you, where you saw the person's face and how you were interacting yeah. with them, and you're like, oh my god, that was I, me. I need I need to go back and make amends on this. Yeah, yeah. It was um, when I was working uh, at Univision, and well, a lot of places where I was working, and and I would like see a situation and I would hightail it down to this person and get in their face and tell them, you know, my way or the highway. And I didn't care how I communicated. I didn't care if I pissed them off. Mm-hmm. It was about me being right and my ego. Yeah. And it was, I compare it to trying to smash a, a round hole into a square, a round peg into a square hole. Yeah. And back then, after you, like you say, I was the man, <laughs> I can imagine you had the posture after, like that, that fueled you. Sure. Wow. Sure. I got some benefit out of that behavior. Yeah, clearly. But that was short term and egotistical. Yeah. And when I got back to self-discovery and saw, I looked backwards at my behavior and I saw this trend yeah. that I, I, this is how I was dealing with everybody. I'm right and you're wrong. And let me teach you a lesson, buddy, which yeah. is exactly how my mother treated me. Um, I, I saw that, hey, I had to change. Hmm. And I knew these principles of masculinity years before but it was only intellectually i wasn't putting it active behavior into my life regarding that yeah so now that i i'm conscious of it now i'm much more sensitive to it yeah and carry it out for the most part i got a question which came up for me which i thought was fascinating was that for 41 years, you were stoned. Yes, sir. So that means that that 41 years of your life was sort of almost like a, you could look at it as a, a, a phase where the way you experienced the world was under the influence of a, a mood altering substance. Now, at the back end, you have nine years where you have absence of that substance in your in your body. Like how is that nine years when you say I experienced the world differently in what way without the substance? How is those nine years different than those first 41 years? Every day I get closer to my authentic self. I saw once I got sober, I saw that I wanted to share my story with the rest of the world because I didn't want anybody to go through what I went through, all the pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started writing my book and connecting depression with getting help to masculinity. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I've, I'm just finishing up a training course for a TEDx talk to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And I do a podcast and, you know, I speak to different groups about this subject and I found my authentic self, which is, I, I knew that life was about helping other people and love thy neighbor and be of service to others who are less fortunate. But I didn't know how to put it into action until my head got clear. And I was allowed, I quieted myself and my mind to be able to listen to what my creator was telling me. Hmm. And when I do that every day and meditate and pray Hmm. and quiet my mind, I get messages And I've been taught that the messages are always around us, but we don't tune into the right frequency, like the right radio station. Yeah. And now I'm doing that more and more and more. Yeah. So things are becoming easier. And, you know, the feedback I get on my work is mostly from women who have such an appreciation for what I'm doing because they don't see anybody else doing it. Mm. And it's hard because guys are like, you know, brick wall, just like I was. They, they don't want to hear it. It's like that Simone Biles stuff. Yeah. You know, where this guy, Clay Travis over here, who works for Fox or he's got some podcast is saying, she just quit. She just quit. You know, This is the beginning of people paying attention to their mental health. It's like men only realize they need help. If their arm is broken, they go to the doctor. But if there's something wrong inside, they don't see it. So they don't ask for help. Yeah, and what you also don't realize is this clay individual you mentioned, like the fact that he comes out and says it in this way also makes it harder for men to come forward because now they feel like, oh, I don't want to be judged by someone like him. So that's the second, the knock-on effect isn't only to her, it's a message that's being sent out that this isn't, this isn't, this is a thing I'm going to judge you for. If you come to me with any of that mamsy pamsy stuff, I'm going to, you know, and that, 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 that psychology, which I see is really old school. It's dying out. I mean, thank God it's dying out. And I think what I've noticed is that It's holding on for dear life. You know, I mean, the whole, you know, especially I think in the U.S., I've been, of course, following the last the Trump era, you know, and and seeing like the 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 that that like the loss of control to another generation that has different ideals and values and and how hard people will hold on to their values and ideals because that's what gives their lives meaning. Yeah, to the point that they'll hurt the other individual. Yeah, of course, it'll go that far. Um, yeah, Tim, I, I'm curious, in the nine years, have you smoked? Like, no. d- did you fall back? No, I have not had uh, a drink or a smoke in eight years and nine months. Wow. And Congratulations. And, and there, there is, uh, I have no appetite for it. I make sure that I'm not around it. Now, alcohol was never my big thing. So I can, I can walk into a bar 
and hang around with people getting totally screwed up on alcohol and it doesn't bother me at all yeah i never really enjoyed it but if you got a bag of marijuana watch out i'm gonna get it and i'm gonna sit there and smoke it all before you can i I mean i hear you say that you've said that twice Mm. um are you saying where you are today if i show you a bag of marijuana you're gonna take it (laughs) you're damn right my mind's gonna start going to okay Where's the pipe? How we, can we smoke this? Is it, yeah. Can I get a soda can and make make a pipe out of this? Yeah. You would know? you would you say like even coming to a place like Amsterdam? Would you avoid flying to a place like this nowadays because of the temptation? Pretty much, unless yeah. I I uh, had somebody with me that could help me. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly to go back to our friend, because he's written several comments, Bola Long, who's with us today. He's from South Africa. South Africa says, I find women better listeners as friends than men. All men know is that things will be okay. Yes. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Yes. That's Thank true. Thank you, Bola Long. Hmm. If, if you trust in God, that it will be okay. Oh, if, yeah. if you trust yourself and drive the bus... God's going to, you know, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Yeah. Tim, how did your social circle change? Yeah, what happened to your stoner friends? I, I love how you pimp up the question. <laughs> what happened to all the potheads you hanged out with? Yeah, what happened to all the potheads? They, they you know, faded away. I, do, they, do they call at all ever? Or do you have contact with any of them? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple guys, but I, I've let them know that, you know, I don't do that anymore. Okay. But you you wouldn't hang out with them physically because I, I imagine there's a risk of them smoking and then you'd have to. Well, the people that I do hang out that I know, uh, you know, they know my story. And, uh, uh, you know, I'd let them know that, look, I, I'm no longer in that business. So, yeah, yeah. It's not going to we're not going to be together in that context. We'll be together with other people. I hang out with sober people. I talk to sober people every day. I'm on Zoom with sober meetings every day. And we have this saying, we are not a glum lot. We get on there and laugh our asses off Mm. and make each other, you know, make fun of each other and pull pranks and it's hysterical. It's, and, and you know, from the outside, you think after you stop, oh, I'll, I'll never have any fun. Couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. In fact, when I've stoned in the past, I'm like, I go comatose. So I become not fun at all. Like you can just put me in a room and I just like no one talk. I'm just one with everything. I'm feeling the stars in my system at the moment. Like that's how, that's where I'm, I don't know how it is for any of you, but I'm the quiet guy that needs to shut down and not talk to anything or anyone. Well, there are different strains of pot. You know, there's some that, that knock you out. There's some that, that are like speed. And then there's everything in between hybrids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, 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 I smoked hybrids that would give me energy. Okay. And, you know, they would fuck my mind up a little, but that was my my challenge that I, I wanted that challenge to be able to 
show myself that I could think straight, even though my mind was going to yeah. get twisted. But you also knew what you were smoking. So you you actually were going, I want more of this and less of this. And I want, so you knew exactly the, the mixes on these things. Yeah. Dude, dude, I could go online and spend hours pinpointing exactly what I wanted, go to the pot store and try two or three and figure out, you know, what's my flavor of the month. Yeah. Cause I had a friend visit. Yeah. Cause I, I, I uh, I, I'm not a smoker. Uh, I think it never was. I even a, 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 a smoking for periods of time. I'd have a smoke here or there, you know, every year maybe. But the thing was interesting is that I live in Amsterdam, but I hadn't ever really spent time in coffee shops. I lived above a coffee shop for a while, and the, like the smoke would go up through the floorboards, which is pretty weird to have that experience. But, but I had a friend come here. And it shocked me because he was literally speaking a foreign language to me as he talked about each one of the strains of these these. And it's his own. Uh, it's it's like it's like a wine connoisseur. You actually know exactly the. And I, I had never. Have you experienced that before? Where people have thought that kind of talk? And this friend did not experience Amsterdam. He experienced. He did not the room in his house smoking. <laughs> Yeah. And he did, and he did mushrooms one day, and he didn't even leave the house. So it, it was like that bad, you know. Yeah. yeah. But he had the time of his life. Hey, I'm, if that's the way that that gets you excited. Then hey, then go for it. Yeah. That would mm. get me some white widow, and yeah. I'm yeah. I'm off the yeah. races. Yeah, white widow. Yeah, that was another one of the words that I, I didn't even I don't even know, but I I knew these weird titles of things yeah. that uh, that that was one of the ones that I heard of. What were you saying? The answer is yes. I, I was I was more a um, hash person. Oh, okay. Oh, I would get so paranoid on hash. I, I God, it was overwhelming. Yeah, that was my uh, constant state of being. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, Tim, thank you. Uh, if people want more information about what you're doing, where do they go? Yeah, I got a podcast called Time Out for Mental Health. It's available on Spotify, Apple, everywhere. My website, timcrass.com, T-I-M, as in Mary, K-R-A, S as in Sam, S as in Sam.com. That's got my whole story. You can access all of my podcasts there. You can talk to me there about uh, speaking engagements or coaching or whatever it is that that you want in this area because it's really necessary. This is this is who I am today. Thank you, Tim. And right. uh, wish you luck with everything you're doing. Yeah, we send you a lot of love. Yeah. Right back at you. You guys were a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. It's a wonderful chaos. We like it that 